Uh, we're in Malachi today, the first chapter of Malachi, uh, and we'll read just the first uh, few verses. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. My dad and I had a, a somewhat strained relationship. The fact that he left home when I was 14 didn't help, but long before then, he wasn't really around that much. We seldom went on family holidays. We did do the occasional day trip, and he did look after us in some ways, mainly financially, but I don't remember him ever telling me that he loved me, and I suspect that if he had, I would have had trouble believing it. And that's how Malachi's audience was feeling about their heavenly father, the one who acknowledged Israel as his firstborn son. Here in the opening verses, we hear God declaring his abiding love. Stated unequivocally there in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, despite what that might suggest, God's not saying here, I have loved you in the past, but not now. Rather, he's speaking of something that was true in the past and remains true in the present. As the New Living Translation puts it, I have always loved you. That's the idea here. God has loved and God still loves these people. The prophet is highlighting God's enduring love, a love that remains unchanged. But that's certainly not what Malachi's audience was thinking. Note how this declaration of divine love is immediately challenged. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? To this affirmation of God's persistent love, they bluntly respond, in what way have you loved us? Now, they may not actually have said so. As with other citations in this book, the prophet may be expressing their thoughts rather than their actual words. It's extremely unlikely, writes one commentator, that the words Malachi puts into the mouths of his opponents were in fact voiced. But one way or the other, these people clearly were entertaining doubts. Like the children in that Colin Buchanan song, they really wanted God to prove it, to demonstrate his love. They found it hard to accept that God fully loved them. It was a difficult pill to swallow, given their present circumstances. They may no longer be exiles in Babylon. They may indeed have resettled in the promised land. The temple may no longer be lying in ruins. Indeed, we'll find out that temple worship was fully operational. But this was hardly the idyllic setting. This was a far cry from the new Eden that the prophet Ezekiel had spoken of. And where was all that blessing? Where was all that prosperity that Haggai and Zechariah had foretold? And what about that double portion, that everlasting joy that Isaiah had anticipated? These people's situation was nothing like that. The reality they faced was crop failure, drought, economic hardship. God seemed to have turned the priestly blessings on their head. 
Rather than overflowing blessing, there seemed to be a lot more curse. Instead of songs of joy, there was bitter wailing. Pests were, were decimating their flocks. Unripe fruit was lying wasted on the ground, like the plums in our backyard after the fruit bats have plucked it off and tossed them all over the place. But in our case, that's no big deal. We can always go and buy some ripe plums in Coles or Harris Farms. But for these people, this was their livelihood. This was their harvest. So how could this be anyone's idea of paradise on earth? Hopes and expectations had dissolved into bitter disappointment. It sure didn't look as though God was making good on his promises. Instead of abundance, they found scarcity. Times were tough, and it was hard to square any of this with the idea of God's love. And maybe some of us have similar misgivings this morning. No, we may not verbalize it, but inwardly we find ourselves asking the same question. The question these people were asking, how is God showing his love for me, for my family? How does God's love square with my present situation? Maybe you're, you're facing a financial crisis. You don't have the means to pay the bills or to put food on the table. Or maybe it's a chronic disease or health condition. Or maybe you're struggling with anxiety and acute depression. Or you're faced with a strained or broken relationship. Or maybe it's infertility. Whatever the case, when faced with life's curveballs, it's easy to question God's love. It's something we all may have done at least at some stage. And if you haven't done so already, you probably will when life gets really tough. When, like Job, your ideal world simply falls apart. None of us doubts God's love when everything's smooth and rosy, when life's easy. But when the wheels come off the tracks when we knock into one obstacle after another, when our resilience grinds towards a train wreck, then that's another matter entirely. And so I suspect that many of us can identify to some extent with Malachi's audience here. Times when God's love simply doesn't ring true in our experience. Times when we find ourselves asking, like these people, how have you loved us? The thought of God's love just seems hollow, vacuous, difficult to fathom. It just simply doesn't compute, not in the light of that problem or those problems, those issues that we're struggling with. Discouragement or despair threatened to, to suffocate, to stifle our faith. Indeed, it seems absurd to believe that God still loves us when our circumstances are screaming otherwise. Well, it's at times like this that we need to be reminded that God does love us. Indeed, we need to be persuaded of this fact. And that's what Malachi does here as he addresses his despondent and, yes, his cynical audience. He reminds them of their unique situation as the people of God. He persuades them that nothing significant has changed. Have another look at what Malachi says there in verses 2 and 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Here Malachi reminds God's people of their special status. That's the point of this comparison between Esau and Jacob. These two brothers, they were twins in their mother's womb, yet one was loved by God in a way that the other was not. Malachi tells us so with his rather blunt chiasm, I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Now we could easily get bogged down on packing that language, but we might end up missing Malachi's main point. 
Malachi is not concerned here with why God loved Jacob or why God hated Esau. And I'm guessing he'd never heard of the term double predestination. But such theologizing is arguably beside the point. Malachi's focus here is on the outworking of God's covenant purposes. Both love and hate is covenantal language. Jacob and his descendants were included in God's covenant. Esau and his descendants were not. As Paul observes, this had nothing to do with social custom, had nothing to do with anything good or bad that they had done. Even before the twins were born or done anything good or bad, God had decreed that the older would serve the younger. God had chosen Jacob as the heir to the Abrahamic promise. God had decreed to bring blessing to the nations through Jacob's descendants. And this set Israel on a very different trajectory from that of Edom. Because of God's covenant love, Israel became the key instrument in God's purposes. By contrast, Esau and his descendants became obstacles to God's purposes. Not because they were predestined to do so, but because they chose to do so. By implacable hostility towards Israel, Edom obstructed God's purposes at every opportunity. And thus, as Malachi underlines here, eventually they faced the inevitable consequences. God turned Esau's hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, when you think about it, this might prove, or might seem to be, a rather strange proof of God's love. After all, God had done precisely the same thing to Israel as well. And they did use the very same agent. Babylon, God's instrument of judgment, had turned the inheritance of both these nations into a wasteland and a haunt for jackals. Israel had been decimated by Nebuchadnezzar. Edom experienced the same thing some decades later at the hands of Nabonidus. And thus we might well ask, how was Edom's plight any evidence of God's enduring love? Well, says Malachi, because only one of these two nations has a future. Only one of them would rise like a phoenix out of the ashes of judgment. Only one of them had a unique place, a unique role in God's plans. You see, Israel had a safety net that prevented them from falling beyond recovery. Edom did not. Just over a century ago, Ireland was split into two separate parts, Northern Ireland that remained part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland that became known as the Irish Free State. It was a political compromise, and it was resented by most Catholics back then and ever since. And so some actively sought to see it abolished, to see the island reunited. They longed, as one nationalist song puts it, to be a nation once again. And as a young Protestant in Ireland, I never thought I'd see the day when their aspirations for a united Ireland might actually be realized. And yet, in the past few years, it does seem ever more likely, if not inevitable. Peter, do not broadcast that back home or I'll get in trouble. <laughs> but Ireland may well become a nation once again. But for, for ancient Edom, this wasn't even a remote possibility. Edom, says Malachi, had no chance of rising from the ashes. Edom's fate as a nation was irreversible. Notice what Malachi says there in verse 4. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will return and build the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty, the, the Lord of armies says, they may build, but I'll demolish. Any reconstruction work would be short-lived. It was doomed to failure. 
Any attempts to rebuild their desolate ruins would be futile. Sooner or later, it would be obliterated by God's wrecking ball. Condemned was stamped all over it. Esau's descendants would not recover. Rather, as Malachi spells out in the rest of verse 4, they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. A people forever cursed. That would be Edom's national epitaph. Edom's desolation was permanent. Judgment for Edom was final. You see, they had engaged in death-defying stunts without a harness, without a safety net. And thus there was no way back. There was no hope of recovery. As a nation, Edom was forever consigned to the pages of history. But not so Israel. Israel did have hope. Israel did have a future. The fact that Israel was presently on the road to recovery, says Malachi, this was a, was a clear expression of, of God's enduring love. This is what his audience would come to realize as God's word was fulfilled before their very eyes. Several Old Testament prophets had announced Edom's demise, and God would surely fulfill his word concerning Edom, just as he would fulfill his word concerning Israel. And so the truth would finally dawn, verse 5. Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. The people would finally recognize that God was at work, even beyond their own borders, bringing his prophetic word to fulfillment. Bad news for Edom, yes, the object of God's hatred and wrath. But this was great news for Israel, the object of God's mercy and love. God had not turned his back on his people. God was still working out his plan and purpose for them. And what God had promised, he would indeed bring to fruition. Israel and Edom may have looked very similar to the casual observer. Indeed, in many respects, they were quite similar. Both had evoked God's wrath. Both had experienced national disaster. Both had suffered at the hands of Babylon. The territories of both had been turned into a wasteland, a haunt for jackals. But for one, there was hope of recovery. And for the other, there was not. And so in response to their doubt, in response to their incredulity, Malachi reminds his audience of their unique place in the plan and the purpose of God. He reminds them that unlike Edom, God has not dealt with them as their sins deserved. After all, they did deserve the same fate as Edom. Israel didn't really deserve a fresh start. They didn't deserve the grace that God had shown them. As, as Peter Adam puts it, it was not that Jacob deserved better treatment than Esau or that God's people deserved better treatment than the Edomites. It was a case that God had decided to set his love on undeserving Israel and to continue that covenant love to his own people. Both nations, both nations fully deserved God's wrath. But in Israel's case, God's wrath was tempered with mercy, with grace. And this was concrete evidence of God's enduring love. Occasionally, I have asked my, my wife a really stupid question. Do you still love me? It's a question you probably should never ask your spouse, so don't try this at home. <laughs> but when I have been foolish enough to ask the question, my wife typically replies, well, I'm still here, aren't I? <laughs> and that's somewhat similar to, to God's response here. But there, there's a bit of a twist. In effect, God's answer to the question of verse 2 is this, well, you're still here, aren't you? Israel's ongoing existence attests to God's enduring love. Despite Israel's sin, God had not abandoned his people to the fate that they deserved. 
God had not given up on his plan to bless them or to bless all the nations through their anointed king. Both Israel and Edom suffered under God's wrath, but only Israel survived. And this, Malachi assures them, this was all the proof of God's love they needed. The fact that God had not dealt with them as their sins deserved, but in wrath had remembered mercy. The fact that God had exercised his grace towards them, ensuring their survival. Unlike in Edom's case, national judgment was not God's final word for Israel. Rather, as the author of Lamentations captures it so well, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you and I need evidence of God's love for us? Well, just consider how he has dealt with us in Christ. Just consider how he has treated us, clearly not as our sins deserve. Do we need tangible proof of God's love? It may be a cliche, but it's nonetheless true. Look to the cross of Jesus, for that's the most convincing. That's the most persuasive. That's the most enduring proof of God's love that there is. God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that endures forever. Indeed, as the hymn writer puts it, it's a love that will not let us go. That's the truth that we must cling to, especially when life circumstances get difficult. When we don't feel that God loves us because circumstances may seem to deny it. I may be wrong, but I probably had good reason for doubting my father's love. Not simply because he failed to tell me, but because he failed to show me. But this is not the case with our heavenly father. He has declared his love in his word, and he has displayed his love in his son, a love that's steadfast, a love that endures forever, loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine, in a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. Did my earthly father love me? Perhaps, but it's impossible to say. Does my heavenly father love me? Absolutely, for it's impossible to deny.